Genesis chapter 12. That's where we're going to be. Um, that's where we're going to be this morning for the duration um, of our time. I hope everybody had a great uh, a great weekend. I feel like um, perhaps if you've taken a look at the weather forecast for this next week, maybe we're at the end of summer, right? Whoa. And we're kind of yes, <laughs> praise the Lord, right? And for seasons and uh, the, the the heat uh, beginning to. Um, be suppressed, right? And maybe some cooler temps. That's kind of sad that it's like in the 80s and we're like, man, praise God, right? Um, but that's going to be pretty exciting this next week. I'm wearing a sweater, so let's see what happens. Um, we are in, uh, in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, before, we, um, before we step back into the text that Simon read for us uh, this morning, I want us to quickly review um, a few points from last week. Um, over the past few weeks, as we'll talk about in just a few moments, um, we have um, covered a tremendous amount of ground in, in Scripture. Um, but as we consider things that we saw last week, um, from um, what chapters were we in? Uh, 9, 10, and 11 last week, the, the three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. Um, we looked back at God's instruction for Noah and his family as they sought to walk in obedience <laughs> To the instruction of the Lord following his judgment on sin and corruption, right? Two weeks ago, we were in um, the flood story, right? And then last week, we were observing um, this, uh, this recreation act, right? Um, we discussed God's commitment um, to mission, right? God's commitment to mission and the way that um, in this new created order, there are certain systems and structures and instruction in place that emphasize God's um, commitment to the advancement of his glory over the entire earth, right? Um, that's kind of what we've said from the beginning, going back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, this instruction to the Lord, from the Lord to Adam um, and his bride to be fruitful and multiply, right? The desire being that we would see and observe God's glory, just um, just tidal wave, right, across creation. Um, only Genesis chapter 3, sin, right, and death and despair and corruption, um, disorder and disunity. Uh, and we observe following that God's, um, God's work to judge um, the wicked while reemphasizing his continued commitment to expand his glory, right, in, um, in chapters 9, 10, and 11. This, this uh, call for Noah and his family to indeed, again, be fruitful and multiply. We observe the value that God places upon those who bear his image and his covenant with creation, right? What was his covenant? What is God's commitment? His covenant with his um, creation that we observed last week. Well, it was, I'll never, like, destroy everything with water again, right? But there will, um, there will be this tempering of this type of judgment from the Lord upon creation um, up until a certain point, right? We know that this is to happen. We can look um, towards, um, you know, the rest of, of Scripture, and there is this pointing towards this great judgment that is to take place upon sin and evil. Only we see, um, last week, we saw uh, God um, God storing up, right? Storing up his, his wrath and his righteous judgment, right, in a way um, that allows for, humanity to continue right to, to to live and to progress on and to progress um progress forward 
There is this ever-present tension between God's mission and the sin of people. This is speaking not just from a Genesis perspective, but this is speaking from a canonical perspective. This is speaking from um, like all of this, like all of God's redemptive story. And again and again, we are, as we read this story, um, left amazed with the commitment of God to um, continue forth in his mission despite um, the continued rebellion of sinners, right? There's rebellious sinners, and then there's God's mission to rescue sinners. And these two things are just in constant collision with one another, right? Um, that is what we observe over the course of these 66 books. And so as we leave last week and we come into chapter 12, um, what are we to make of what we read in these three verses? If you take notes, if you're a note taker, Write this down. This is going to be helpful. This is what we're going to work on kind of um, growing an understanding of as we as we spend our time together this morning. Um, God's kindness and the rescue of Abraham are on display in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. What we're going to find is that God's kindness and rescue of Abraham serves as the avenue by which God extends kindness and rescue to the nations. Let me say that one more time. God's kindness and rescue of Abraham, observable in the first three verses of chapter 12, serve as the avenue by which God extends kindness and rescue to the nations. One thing that we're going to find this morning is that this story uh, is, is way bigger. Right? It is way bigger than we might have initially imagined. We said from the beginning, as we've started this journey through Genesis, that if we get Genesis wrong, right? if we get the first uh, even even few chapters of this book wrong, then we are going to, by nature, misunderstand and misrepresent the rest of Scripture. Like we're not going to clearly understand what is unfolding over the course of this redemptive narrative. It's not going to be clear. And so there's this emphasis on let's let's get this right. And so we spent a lot of time talking about Genesis. 3.15 and this plan that God professes before his fallen creation to rescue and redeem by the seed of the woman. Now, we see that and we go, that's amazing. Only we come to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and we go, this is more amazing than I ever could have imagined. And so one of the things that I want us to do this morning is to unpack just all of the beautiful things that we see from these first three verses and how it um, just continues to shape our understanding of what God is doing. Okay, here's what we're doing. What is God doing? Right. What is God doing? That's what we're trying to to get from these three verses today. Um, we are going to slow down. <laughs> right. We're going to slow down because over the past um, over the past five weeks, we've gone through 11 chapters of Genesis, and we've read them all. It has been so much fun. Ben and I were talking on Monday, and I was just talking about, man, this is so fun to read the Bible this way, right? To just come and to sit down and be like, okay, unapologetically, we're about to read three chapters of the book of Genesis. We're about to spend the next 10 minutes reading together, right? Like, that is awesome, right? Like, that is really cool. There's, we, have no, we have no issue with that whatsoever. But this week, we are going to slow down a little bit, and we're going to look at these three verses. And we're going to do so for um, a number of reasons. And so let me explain to you briefly why. Um, number one, so that we can catch our breath a little bit. Okay, so that we can just... We can just step back and we can just we can just breathe for a moment, because if you've been with us the past five weeks if we, as we've gone through this story, man, every time we leave, I don't know about you, but I kind of feel like we just like drank a lot. Right. Like we just like put our mouth straight to the fire hydrant and we just we just took it right like champs. Right. 
we need to slow down a little bit. We're going to slow down this morning, and we're going to look at these at these three verses. Um, that's the first reason that we're we're kind of structuring this the way that we are. The second is because I think that it's really, really, um, really important that we understand um, the place of these three verses in the redemptive narrative. Right? How how all of this fits together. You see, we we say this again and again. Um, and again, the Bible is composed of 66 books, right? But there's one story that's being told. I don't, I don't know if, you, if that's the way that you naturally read the Bible. It, typically, um, especially because we know that the Bible, this book, is made up of different books, right, and letters. And what we tend to do as we approach the Bible is we tend to, like, break it all up, to just section it up and to just break it apart. And we kind of lose some of the continuity between everything, like what is being accomplished and what is actually being discussed and, and told. But as we, as we zone in on these three verses and we consider what we've already read and we look ahead to where we are going, I think that we see that while it is composed of 66 books, there is this, this one grand story of God advancing his glory over the fabric of all creation. This week we're going to hone in on one question. And the question is this, how does Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3 inform our understanding of how God does things? How do these three verses inform, shape, mold, create an understanding for you and I of how God does things? You see, for the church, we are asking, how do these verses shape the way that we see God's work of rescuing a people by faith before employing them and using them to accomplish his plan in creation? But as, as Christians, we sit and, we, and we, we're asking this question. How does, how does this, right? Did you guys notice this, by the way? This is new. It's, it's new, right? It's clean and kind of. Um, I got my hands on it a little bit, this red line, which I'll explain in just a few moments. But, but we're seeing, um, we're seeing this, this, this plan and this mission that is, is progressing. And what we want to ask as we, as we come to these three verses this morning is, is, is how um, does this, from a Christian perspective, shape our understanding of God's commitment to use a, 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 a pilgrim people to accomplish his plan in creation that extends beyond this, by the way, right? Like we're going all, we could go all the way back to the beginning. We couldn't fit it all up here. You have a hard enough time reading it like already. Okay. And so to have all of the book up here would be challenging, but, but what we see God doing doesn't begin here. It's just continuing here. As we come into chapter 12, it's not, it's not beginning, but it is continuing. And so for the church, this is how we approach this passage. Now, if you're here and you're like somewhat skeptical, like about Christianity and like what following Jesus is, is all about, um, or maybe you're a little unclear as to what is going on or what he is doing, God doing in the world how is he accomplishing this, this work that we're talking about? Then these three verses are going to assist in providing clarity. Right? So if you're here and you're, you're asking some questions, I want us to lean in. I want you to lean in and I want you to consider how these three verses shape our understanding of how God does things. How does God, how does God do things? Eleven chapters in the past five weeks. This morning, three verses. Here we go. Genesis chapter 12, 
Uh, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now let's just stop there for a moment. In fact, we're going to cut what we just read in about thirds. And we're going to talk about the Lord coming to and talking to Abram or um, Abraham. Right? One thing that we can observe from these first few verses is God's calling of a people out of sin and idolatry and into fellowship with himself. This is the way God does things. God calls people. God calls rebellious people out of sin and idolatry, and he brings them into intimacy and fellowship and friendship with himself. And you go, okay, well, wait a second. We're talking about one guy. How does this guy and this conversation that he participates in with God, right? Like, how does that inform our, um, or, or create for us a posture, right? In which we can say that God does this for, for people. It looks like one person. How does this shape our understanding of God doing this for people? As we come into this story, we, we find a man named Abram, or Abraham, who, who finds himself at the center of God's plan to reverse all that has gone wrong in the world since Adam. And so how does God do things? Like, how does God work? Well, we see that, that he is um, bringing about and working his plan and purpose to, to reverse that which was made so broken in Genesis chapter 3. Creation in the beginning is beautiful. The world is absent of sin and there is perfect intimacy between like humans, people, and one another, right? No friction. We are familiar with friction, yes? Right? Like, like interpersonal relationship problems. We get that. Okay, the world, in the beginning, this is not an issue, right? Not only is this not an issue as it relates to people, like connecting with one another, but there's also this perfect fellowship that humanity enjoys with the creator and sustainer of all things. Only in Genesis chapter 3 we see that all of this is, is broken, Right? It's, it's, it's all broken as a result of Adam's rebellion, as a result of Eve's sin. In Abraham, we see a man who takes center stage of God's plan to reverse all that has gone wrong. Now, let's not, let's not be confused. I want us to look at two passages in both the Old and New Testament that shape the way that we understand God's work in calling Abraham into mission. Because that's what's going on here. Right? He's, he's calling Abraham to be a part of this, of this grand and beautiful picture. So I want us to look first at Joshua 24. Okay, We're going to step out of Genesis chapter 12 for just a moment. We're going to flip over to Joshua 24. And we're going to see Joshua recalling the work of the Lord that has led this nation, this nation of God's people who have been um, freed from bondage and oppression in Egypt to the precipice of the promised land. Joshua gathers, Joshua 24, all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and he summoned the elders. 
the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah and the father of Abraham and Nabor, and they served other gods. Now this is really important. They served other gods. Verse 3, Then I took, God says, your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. So we are, in these first three verses, we are stepping in to this, to these first words of conversation. And we see in verse 1, the Lord saying to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, Joshua 24 affirms the successfulness of God's mission that is unpacked in Genesis chapter 12. But in verse 1, we see God speaking to Abraham and calling him to leave his country and his family, his father's home, and go into a land that God had shown him. Well, wait a second. That's not what it says, is it? It doesn't say that he's taking him to a land that he has shown him, but what does he say? It says he's taking him to a land that he what? That he would show him, right? That he will show him. Now, you go, that just seems kind of like semantics, right? Like, is that really that important? I think, um, I think that it is. Over the past few weeks, God has been doing some incredible and gracious things to affirm his character to the characters in this story as well as you and I. There's been major emphasis over the past few weeks on the trustworthiness of God. We talked about it in the very beginning. What does he say? He says, I will not flood the earth. In fact, here's a sign of this covenant promise, a rainbow that is placed in the clouds to to serve as a reminder. My continued commitment, right? My, My covenant faithfulness. We step into chapter 12 and we see this promise from the Lord. I will give you this land. Again, God's people are being reminded here of the faithfulness of their God. The message is this, that God's promises are trustworthy. Okay, God's promises are trustworthy. For this, for this man Abraham, right, he's experiencing now this initial point of contact that will serve To establish the continued faithfulness of God. But let's step out of this scene for a moment. And let's step into the shoes of the original audience. God's people preparing to take possession of this land that had been promised to them. As they're sitting and they're hearing this story told, what then are they being reminded of? Well, they're being reminded of the faithfulness of God, as if he has not again and again and again in their own lives proved himself faithful, like or and just and or and or just faithful again and again and again, just faithfulness. Right. He, he faithfully delivers his people. He sustains a people. He creates a people. He sustains a people. He grows a people in like a really tumultuous Time in history. He frees his people, liberates them, right, leads them out, continues to keep them and care for them, and then brings them to like the goal line. Like here we are. 
Right? Preparing to, to, to enter in. What is the point of emphasis? What is this all about? Well, there's this, this grand focus on the faithfulness and trustworthiness of God. In addition, it becomes clear from Genesis 12 verse 1 that genuine faith and obedience are connected. Abraham comes from this really like, like idolatrous background. Right? That's what Joshua 24 teaches us. Only the Lord calls Abraham out of that. And he calls him into this, into this new role, into this, to this new plan. At which point we observe the connection between genuine faith and obedience. It's at this point that we observe the uniqueness of the Christian faith. What is it about the Christian faith that, faith that is unique? What is it that distinguishes Christianity, right, Protestantism, from, from Catholicism and, and Mormonism and Islam and moralism? What is it that distinguishes Christianity from, from all of these different world religions and schools of thought? Well, again, Abraham is called out of idolatry. And he responds in faith to the call of God. We observe from Abraham this affirmation that faith serves as the catalyst for obedience. Faith serves as the catalyst for obedience. Faith serves as the, as the catalyst for obedience. Abraham is called out of idolatry and he responds in faith to the call of God. He's called out and he, and he trusts him to accomplish that which he had promised concerning the redemption of sinners. This is the message of the author to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8 coming alongside Joshua 24. To just bring to blossom the work of God. Listen to what we read in Hebrews 11 verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out, uh, out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Let's read that one more time. Lean in here. This is, this is so important and so good. By faith... Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. And so the question then might naturally be, wait, okay, so faith in what and faith in who? By faith, Abraham obeyed? Well, what is the object of Abraham's faith in Genesis chapter 12? The author of the Hebrews makes it clear that there is this faith present, right? That Abraham possesses faith. And so what? Like what? Faith in what? Faith in who? Well, ultimately, and this is so important. Oh, gosh, guys, this is so good. This helps us to understand the redemption of Old Testament saints. Okay? Like this helps us to understand how God rescues in the Old Testament, this helps us to understand how God redeems and calls out and into by way of the Old Testament. Faith in what? Faith in who? Well, ultimately faith in God. Wait, no, ultimately faith in Christ. And you say, wait a second, like we're in Genesis chapter 
12. Like, we are not even on the board as it pertains to, like, coming to the Gospels and the arrival of our King. And so how can Christ be the object? How can Christ be the subject of faith for Abraham when he isn't even, like, on the scene yet? Like, what does that look like? How can this, how can this happen? How do we make sense of this? Abraham has this faith, ultimately, in the promise of God to accomplish that which has been recorded in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Who is the fulfillment of the promise of God in Genesis chapter 3? Who is the one that would, would overcome evil, right, and crush the head of the serpent at great personal cost to himself? Who's the one that's going to do that? The seed of the woman. Right, the preservation of the line. Well, it's Jesus, right? And so even as we come back here and we go, well, how, what, is the, what is the object and the subject of Abraham's faith that makes redemption possible? It's Christ Jesus, right? It's confidence in the promise of God in Genesis chapter 3, the first proclamation of the gospel. Even while he did not see clearly the things that we can, As those who have access to the full canon, we can be sure that the comfort that Abraham found through fellowship with God was a result of God's work to produce confidence and faith for Abraham in Christ. Christ, the the fulfillment of the promise of God to rescue sinners. In Abraham and in Genesis 12, this Genesis 12 scene, we see a pattern develop. And here's the pattern. The pattern is this. God um, gifting faith that results in rescue and comfort. A a comfort that will oftentimes (laughs) result in a degree of discomfort, especially from a cultural perspective. This is the pattern, okay? This is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is what it looks like to follow after Jesus. Let's say that one more time because if it's a pattern, right, then we need to, like, be clear as to what the pattern is. So as we read Scripture, we can can see the pattern. Do you guys get it? You get what I'm saying here? God gifts faith. God gifts faith that results in rescue and comfort. Christ Jesus being the object, being the subject of faith. A comfort that will oftentimes result in a degree of discomfort. Now we see this in Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to draw it out in just a few, in just a few moments. A degree of discomfort, especially from a cultural perspective. And especially for, for you and I being called out of an old cultural perspective perspective it is it is clear within god's word that through repentance and faith we are redeemed and it's clear within god's word that faith is evidenced by obedience from noah and abraham from joshua and now from you and i we find rescue in the sacrifice of jesus on the cross For our sins and the kindness of God to crush his son so that we could know his comfort. Think about the discomfort that Abraham experiences as a result of obedience that flows from faith in Genesis 12. He leaves his country. 
Right? He leaves his family. He leaves his father's home. He leaves all of the things, right, that naturally produce both um, a degree of, like, frustration and comfort in us. Right? Like, we can connect with this. Both of those things are true. Abram is called out, embracing, initially, a degree of discomfort that results from leaving behind what he knows so well in order to take possession of that which God is promising right, to, to give to, to he and his family. Abraham is called to, to leave behind all he knows, and yet he does so confidently. But Abraham's called to leave behind all he knows, and he does so confidently. Now, here's the thing, right? You and I, um, as we look from a New Testament perspective, are called to leave what we know. Right? We're, we're called out of idolatry, similar to what we observe communicated by way of Joshua 24, into fellowship with God. And you go, wait a second, how am I called out of idolatry? I don't know that I have like this corner of my apartment that is like designated to like the worship of false gods, right? Maybe you do. Maybe, maybe it doesn't look exactly like that, right? But instead it's this worship of, um, of, of achievement, right? Personal gain and affluence, popularity and, and power. Like you and I existing as the center of our own little worlds, right? And the, and the subject and object of all of our praise. God calls us out of that, right? He rescues us out of that. And he brings us into intimacy with, with himself, right? He, he makes himself known to us so that he might become the object of our worship. Right, so we might not be anxious, but so that we might experience true, lasting, eternal, temporal, eternal rest. Like both of those things are true. This is the gospel's ability to work in our lives. We experience um, a degree of, of comfort temporally in that we now express confidence in the one who calls us out of idolatry and into fellowship with him. And we say, you rule and you reign and you exercise providential power over all creation and circumstance. And that creates in me a degree of confidence, right? You guys get this. So it's there. But it's not just there, right? It's also like stored away in this eternal realm, right? That which is to be accomplished ultimately one day as we are, um, as we are finally like, like liberated from, from brokenness and bondage, right? As we dwell with God in a glorified state, right? Enjoying all of who he is. Forever, never growing tired and never growing weary of the unique fellowship that we now enjoy with him. This is, this is what God's, God is doing. He's, he's moving this story forward. There's this, this call and the promise of this land. These are our statements from God concerning his use of Abraham and his family to fulfill his promise that now takes on an added dimension. Let's consider for just a moment what we know. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. Are you guys with me? Awesome. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 for a moment. Genesis 3, God promises that the seed of woman would crush the head of Satan. We read this and we say... um, 
That this promise from God shapes the way that we read and understand his word. This promise shapes the way that we progress through these 66 books. How does, how does this scene fit within this plan? Right? How, does, how does this scene fit within this plan? This is, this is it, right? All the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we're going to talk about what that means in just a moment. But, but here, this, this, is, this is representative, this red line, right? Of God's redemptive plan that is being woven throughout all of these scenes. Right? We talked in Genesis 3, and we go, okay, there's this promise, and now we trace it. We trace the progression of the promise. At various times and in various ways and in various places, we see God sustaining a sinful and rebellious people. Right? Why? Well, because he is, he is ultimately and supremely committed to his plan, to his mission. Right? It is to be accomplished. We know that to be true. Do you want to know why? You don't have to take my word for it. You can turn to Revelation. And you can see it. Or you can see that it's, it's happening, that there's this, there's this spectrum that we are observing all of this on. We see it in Genesis 3, and then we come to Genesis chapter 12, and there is now an added element to this thing, right? That this scarlet thread that now is, is woven throughout the entirety of Scripture, through all of these chapters in Genesis, as we, as we move forward into Exodus, and then we just keep transitioning. We go to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We just keep going into the, the Psalms, right? Isaiah. Oh, we skip over into the New Testament, and there's Mark. We've got that. Um, we keep going, and we come to 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. We keep going, and what do we observe? This, this thread continues to be woven throughout this story. What we see here informs the way that we read everything that we see here. As we see God's, God's plan coming, coming out, in Genesis 12, we see the scope of God's plan, and it answers a question that could arise if we consider not only the start of the Bible, but the conclusion as well. Okay, I get Genesis chapter 3, and I see that there is this people that, um, or this seed, right, that is to, to bring about uh, the blessing of a particular people. Only we go to the end of the Bible, and what do we observe? This is one of the most beautiful scenes in Scripture. You go to the end, and you see the nations gathered before the throne of God. So we go to Genesis 3 and we go, okay, here we are, but like, how are we to get to the nations gathered before the throne? See, like every tribe, every tongue, every nation, like how is this ultimately to happen? How is this going to take place? How is God going to accomplish this mission? We see it in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Right? That God is going to use Abraham and his, his, his family to bless Not just a nation, but the nations. The the plan is is much, much bigger perhaps than we initially initially realized. We, We see a promise that comes in the aftermath of Babel. Right? And God's confusion of language and the dispersion of humanity as a result of their seeking to make their own names great. God promises to, to judge and to make his name great. 
Right? In, in Abraham, we observe a new type of Adam, a blessing to people as opposed to Adam who ushers in what? The curse, right? Like all of us, like we find ourselves under this, don't we? Like you can, you can focus on like particular points in your own life in this very season that support the existence of a fallen creation. We're under a curse. You guys remember? Like, I feel like I'm cursed. Yeah, you are. <laughs> right? Like, we're under a curse. Only in, in Abraham, we see now this plan that is being made clear to you and I for the first time. Let's be clear. This is not as though we showed up in Genesis chapter 12 and God said, okay, like, there's a lot of room up here. How am I going to fill all this? Right? Like, this is God's plan, like, before the foundations of creation in eternity past, to bless the nations through Abraham. To, to bless a people residing under a curse by way of the promise of the coming of the seed that is going to redeem ones from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Abraham and his family would be the recipients of great prosperity. Right, a, a land to dwell in and a family that would obliterate initial expectation. I want us to think for just a moment back. Who was here for our time in Mark? Raise your hand if you were here for any of Mark. Raise them high so I can see. Okay. Awesome. To all of you new people, welcome. Hi, <laughs> welcome. Um, as we look back at Mark, there's this scene in which Jesus is in a house and he's teaching. And it's just full of people, right? And um, news comes from the outside, right, that his family is out there. Right? It's his family is out there, and they're, they're calling him out, and like they're calling him home. Like, okay, Jesus, time, time to come home now, right? To which Jesus responds by looking around, right, at those that are, that are gathered around. And he says, like, no, here, like, here's, here's my family, right? Like, here's my my mother and brothers, like, here they are. So we step back into Genesis 12, and we see this promise, right? We, and it's going to progress. We're going to see it over the next couple of weeks. That's why we're spending so much time emphasizing this, because we're going to see it come up again next week. We see this promise from the Lord um, to, to make this man's family great. Now, here's the irony of this, this promise, to... Um, this promise is made to a husband with a, a barren wife who miraculously would become um, a mother, right? As, as, as Abraham would become a father to a little boy named Isaac who would become the father to Jacob and Esau, right? And we see the growth of this nation. Right, we see a nation developing from this one man and his family. But as is often the case, God works on multiple planes. You see, his promise is to bless the earth um, and its inhabitants by way of this man Abraham and his family. We witness right, this new family that God is building right, of spiritually needy people who are adopted through the blood of a better brother, Jesus, right, into uh, the family of the best father, 
right, who, who loves and sacrifices for his children. And so as Abraham receives this promise, right, and we're going to see it progress over the next few weeks, just imagine the multiple planes that we are able to observe from our position that God is working on. Right? You're, yeah, you're going to have some children, and they're going to have children, and children, and children, and this nation is going to grow. But what do we observe from Jesus in the Gospel of Mark? Well, he points towards this grander family that God is bringing together. Right? So it's where he looks around and he goes, yes, okay, there is a unique relationship that is enjoyed with those who are excuse me, who are outside of this home right now, beckoning me out, but as I look around and I observe those sitting around me, there is this sense in which God is building this even bigger family. And who makes up this bigger family? The nations, right? Like the the nations, this family is is composed and comprised of people from, from all backgrounds, Right, who, who, who look very different and sound very different. We talked last week about the confusion of language and how God actually, in Acts chapter 2, brings this, um, this, this group right, back together again. Not just in terms of their geographical location to one another, but he brings them back together again and that they become a part of this, this new family that functions in this new way. Right? Sharing and having all things in common, worshiping the Lord together, right? Taking of the bread and the cup, right? All the beautiful things that we observe this new family in the book of Acts observing together. This is the same family that's gathered before the throne of God, worshiping and singing praises to his name. This family with a new structure, a blessing that transcends cultural expectations beyond a single nation. And so I want, us to, I want us to consider a few things as we begin closing our time. Christ Jesus as the object of Abraham's faith. Christ Jesus as the object of Abraham's faith and the foundation of his obedience encourages you and I to look beyond Abraham and worship towards the one who extends and displays greater faith. Ultimately, we possess faith because God gives faith. Jacqueline read it in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of the Lord. This produces, it must produce and inspire gratitude and worship and obedience. Right? To, to, to call out in faith for forgiveness. This is where we start. Where do you start? I came in here and I was skeptical, right? Like, like I've been skeptical. I've been asking a lot of questions about, about faith and what it looks like to, to follow after Jesus. Where do we start? Man, we call out in faith, right? We turn from sin and we, and we call out. We, we observe the idolatry that has existed um, in our lives, and we turn from it, right? We flee from it. We see that observable through the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Leaving it, leaving everything to follow after the Lord, to display faithfulness and a worshipful posture toward him. Because there's this realization that he is good and that he's trustworthy. Do you know who that, that's who God is? Did you know that? That God is good and he is, and he is trustworthy. And so call out in 
faith turn from sin and turn to Jesus, who provides hope by the power of his blood and the resurrection of the dead for a beggarly poor people who are made citizens of God's kingdom. We begin there, and then, and then we say, okay, then what does that look like then to step out and continue to apply principles observed in these first three verses of chapter 12? We see obedience. Faith produces obedience. And we see the Lord's commitment to use a faith people to bring about the blessing of God upon the nations. And so we might begin asking ourselves, right? Like it looks like God is committed to using his people as a blessing. And so what does it look like for me to be a blessing? Like what does it look like to live as a blessing? Knowing that this is the way that God functions. Right? That God blesses the nations through his people, through this faith community, through these Jesus people, these Jesus followers, believers in Yahweh. God, God blesses, he brings about, and he produces blessing. And so how, how, what does that look like for us? Like, what does that look like for you? What does it look like to walk in obedience to the instruction of the Lord and to respond in a posture of worship and appreciation for what he has done for you? Let's revisit a few questions that we asked in the beginning. How um, does God do things? How does Genesis 12, 1 through 3, inform our understanding of how God does things for the church? How do these three verses shape the way that we see God's work of rescuing people by faith before employing them and using them to accomplish his plan in creation? If you're here and you're, you're asking questions about what it means to follow after Jesus, you're asking, how does he work and what does it look like to, to, to follow after him? These verses bring clarity for you and I. We gaze upon him, trusting in confidence and his faithfulness and trustworthiness. Christ Jesus, the object, subject of our worship, and the one in whom we look to for all things, seeking to make known the glory of his name in our world and among creation, as we go out of this place and seek to live as a mission-minded people. As we come to the table today, I want us to, um, I want us to consider the practicality of this call. I want us to consider the practicality of this call, and I want us to consider um, our place in God's plan. Taking this news of forgiveness and blessing into the world through the death and resurrection of our King, both in our speech, right, like faithfully sharing and proclaiming the gospel, as well as the authenticity of our actions, cares and spirit-empowered obedience. This is how we live this, okay? This is what it looks like to to live this. This is a posture that does not come naturally to you and I, but it's one that God produces in us. And so let us reflect back on who he is and what he has done, how he has worked, and blessed the nations, right? Producing Jesus' followers who go about blessing the nations by pointing the one who is able to bring blessing by rescuing us from the curse of sin and death. Christ Jesus. As we come to the table today, let's take the bread and the cup, and let's remember our rescue. And we are a rescued people. We are a blessed people because Christ Jesus has become the object of God's wrath for you and I. Let's pray and ask the Lord to make these truths real that we might worship Him uh, authentically. Thank you for Him.